0: to episode 10 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com and for information about the podcast as well as show notes, other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com This week inside the Roleplayer Studio I've got Donald Gardner who's an old friend of mine from Christchurch days, a compatriot of uh, Farrell and also David who have been on the show the last two weeks. So, without further ado... Hi, Donald. How's it going?
1: Not too bad. Thanks, Dan. Yourself?
0: I'm doing quite well. I'm a little bit uh, tired. I just had the Coldplay concert there. They put on a good show. i got a massive pocket full of a thousand, uh, at least, um, paper butterflies and X's and M's and, and some strange things that I'm not able to identify. But overall, <laughs> I'm pleased to uh, finally get you on the, the show here. And uh, listeners can keep an ear out for future podcasts where I'm going to have Farrell and Don are on the show together and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what it might take to put a game together. So just so that people can get to know a little bit about you, how long have you been a role player?
1: I started role playing in 1984, so when I was about eight years old. Um, my next door neighbour introduced me to, to role playing. He'd created a homebrew game based off basic D, set in a mad max style post-apocalyptic setting and we, we played that a, a few times but then then that rapidly became a, a regular session of, of basic D, so old red box dnd right
0: and so what was the particulars of this mad max game was it all the same sort of thing because i seem to vaguely recall that around about that time or perhaps a I couldn't say for sure, but there was an epis there was a sorry an issue of Dragon magazine, and in the issue of Dragon magazine, there was a section at the back about adapting Dungeons and Dragons for play in uh, modern times. And I remember the picture on it has a like a, a knight, not a knight sorry a fighter and a barbarian or something, charging across a, an ice hockey rink, holding onto a. Holding onto a sword and a and a shield and and things like that, and the and the hockey players looking to defend themselves, holding onto hockey sticks. So, um, do, you, do you remember if he based it on anything other than his own imagination, or
1: that sounds excellent? Um, I don't remember that. He had uh, pages and pages of of refill paper filled with pictures and his notes and his um, home brewed system, um, oh. which was which was quite neat. Uh, But it mostly involved driving motorcycles really, really fast and big
0: guns. (laughs) Sounds like an ideal uh, post-apocalyptic sort of world. And were you the only player or were there other people from the neighbourhood involved?
1: I was the only player to begin with, yes. Um, But we, we certainly picked up a larger group as time went by and I spread the... Disease, I guess, of role playing amongst my 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 other school friends as well. So, it's we, interesting we you should
0: Say disease. I'm interested to know, like, have you ever, in 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 those early days, did you ever experience anybody with a with a knee jerk negative negative reaction to the idea of role playing or Dungeons and Dragons specifically?
1: Not that I can remember, we had a surprisingly tolerant setup. I remember my parents bought me my first D and D box set. It was a second edition, a uh, second edition, a second hand copy of the the basic D and D box with a bunch of dice to replace the ones that weren't with the original box anymore. And and they certainly encouraged us to to, to play. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and I don't remember anyone reacting too negatively. Certainly, people didn't want to play there were people who weren't interested it wasn't their kind of thing but nobody who who said you know
0: you you can't do that or you shouldn't be doing that right like you're not going to go to hell if you uh if you, <laughs> no you that's play right play that. um it's interesting to uh see that people have so, and, and this is just almost seems to be across the board is that people fall into two camps either they get it or they don't get it, and that won't be anything um uh, anything, any kind of a revelation to to most role players, but I do sometimes wonder why that is. There's no, I can't put my finger on what it is about role playing that is so polarizing. It seems to me that most people like to, you know, use their imagination, most people like to interact with with stories, and you know, they'll happily sit and watch a film. Although that's more passive, you know, most people will discuss it afterwards. Like I don't know why they didn't do this, and I don't know why they didn't do that, and it seems to me a a pretty small. Uh, step to go from that to, to being in a role-playing game but um, but people get the idea that it's not really for them pretty quickly and I'm not sure why that would be and you got any theories on that
1: that's a good question I do think maybe there's still some stigma attached where in a lot of people's minds role-playing equals Dungeons and Dragons and the negative portrayal of D&D either on a a very mild level, you know, ha ha. It's something geeks to to a very serious. It's involved with Satanism and and black magic kind of thing. Right? Whether, whether there is that still that popular uh, perception of it. But again, for some people, it's it's just such a uh, a step away from what they normally associate with a leisure activity. You know, it's the sort of thing you haven't done for most people since you were a kid.
0: Sure, and I think um, most. Yeah, most people uh, won't have done anything like it. I mean, there really is nothing like it that I can that I can see would be there would only be a small small step to it. The closest I can imagine is the uh, choose your own adventure or you know fighting fantasy type books. But those are mm. long since become uh, relics. Really, I mean, I know that they still produce new versions of it, but I I don't remember seeing any new ones. Uh, around, I Perhaps they're niche, or perhaps I just don't move in the right circles. But, but They are the, quite niche, yeah. The first one of those that I played, I think, was uh, was Escape, or... Yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, there was a, a cat which featured prominently in it, and I had cats at the time, so I just kept on you know, feeding this cat and being nice to it, and that seemed to, to uh, win the game for me. But that's really what got me hooked on, on the idea of role-playing. Before I'd ever tried any role-playing games, you know, those... Um, Mystery of Chimney Rock, that's what it's called.
1: Um, <laughs> Excellent.
0: It, it's, uh, that's really what got me sort of hooked on that idea, and I think that that's probably a pretty easy transition, but today I don't think anything like that really uh, really exists. Even the computer games, I think it's a, a much more passive activity than reading a book and, and choosing a path for your, uh, for your characters. But I think probably um, people have got a pretty good idea about your, uh, about your background here. Oh, the last question I had was, uh, what do you play now? Now, that may be a bit of overlap with Farrell from Episode Eight, but... Um, what are you into playing at the moment? Yes, that's
1: right. We're we're playing fourth edition uh, D&D in an Eberron campaign at the moment, though it's been a little sporadic. We've had a little trouble getting ourselves organised sort of post-Christmas. There's a lot of people on holiday and, and things like that. So... Uh, we've also played, a, as Farrell mentioned, a, a very nice one-shot of, of Fiasco. That right. was our, our second attempt with that, and the uh, the first one was a very good introductory game. But this one, everything really clicked,
0: right? And
1: uh, and that was a lot of fun.
0: What did you base that Fiasco game on? We used one of the
1: published playsets from Bully right. Pulpit, and it was the uh, the Los Angeles nineteen thirty six playset, so detective noir style thing. Right? Did you? Inco- How many people did you have in the game? That was a five-player game. The uh, the first game we tried was a four-player, um, both of which worked fine, good good numbers, but five-player just makes it go a little longer.
0: Right. Okay, so what's your favorite book or supplement, other than Victoria, of course?
1: That's a, it's a very good question, and I had to think long and hard about that, and I'm going to cheat slightly, and I'm actually going to name a few. <laughs> sure, go ahead. Uh, uh, Setting-wise, I'm absolutely in love with the uh, second edition D and D Planescape setting. Um, it's, for me, it encapsulates pretty much everything I'm looking for in a setting. It's, it's very unique. It's quirky. Uh, it's absolutely full of brilliant ideas. Um, beautifully illustrated uh, by Tony DiTerlizzi, or however you pronounce his name, um, and the the Planar setting of the old. Uh, D&D-style cosmology gives you so many options, so many different places you can set a game, uh, all tied together with Sigil in the middle of it. It's, it just To me, it's just such a beautifully put-together setting that I will always happily go back to it.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever read anything from Planescape, and it's interesting that you should say that it's beautifully illustrated because I don't think I ever got past the art of the cover. I found the, uh, the cover art really strange, and I don't think I ever... Open it up. Does the same art on the cover? What's uh, what's inside, like that,
1: that? No, the the cover art I believe is is, is that sort of photo pastiche style, like right. a Dave uh, Dave him who does the Sandman what, covers yes. that that style of thing. Um, whereas the the insides are all. Uh, it, you could say that uh, Tony DiSileo's stuff is, is slightly cartoony, um, but very distinctive, and it's got a very plainscape feel to it. and And they've consistently used his art throughout right. the the product and its expansions, and it really does signify plainscape to me, which yeah. is which is really cool.
0: Yeah, I enjoy um, consistency when it comes to art. When I was putting Victoria together, that was one of the things that I I struggled with a bit. First of all, because It was impossible for me to afford uh, original art. So all of the art in the book, um, apart from a few pieces which I commissioned, are from public domain. And even within the context of public domain, at that time there was no such thing as photography. So I was lucky in a lot of respects because I could use um, art from the uh, London Weekly News and other publications because there were no um, photographs. They had really great artists to draw a lot of these historical things that were going on, so it was that was really um, something that I focused on pretty early, is how am I going to get decent art in in whatever it is that I produce, and so the wiki commons and that uh, public domain art was uh, really handy, and as it turned out, because there were certain um, parameters for producing legible pieces of art for mass-produced newspapers at that time where they didn't have the technology they have now, there was a very distinctive style that was required and that that led to creating, well, at least what I feel was, a relatively cohesive style throughout the book. There's one section where I had to use a number of paintings... Um, Converted to grayscale, which is in the uh, sort of secret backstory section. That's really the only part of the book that diverges from that a uh, black and white um, line art type type drawing. But that was from necessity. There were very few pictures available of the of the actual real people that occur in the or that are represented at least in the in the backstory. So, so yeah, I think that a consistent art scheme is really important. And I guess that's what yeah, the I... sisters, art directors.
1: Yeah, I I really like the art in Victoria. I think it's a very nice choice. Um, it really gets the feel of the the setting across. And uh, I actually didn't find the uh, the change in art style and the backstory piece to be distracting. I I really liked that once you got there, you had actual you know sort of photographs or very close to photographs of the of the the key players in the in the scheme of things. You know, and that different
0: style. Yeah, I thought it was really nice. Well, it's nice of you to say there, uh, Donald, and and, uh, your check is in the mail. So (laughs) if you could choose one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And this doesn't necessarily mean you think that it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way or it's associated with some uh, unpleasant event in your life that's completely beyond its control.
1: This question made me think long and hard, actually. Uh, my initial response was there's, there's plenty of poor games out there and I have enough in my collection that, uh, you know, I would never dream in a million years of trying to actually play. Um, but then thinking about it, it's a lot easier to criticise than it is to create, and the reason I... Collect role-playing games is that even the the worst system has whether it has uh, you know a, a kernel of valuable um, mechanic that you can borrow and use somewhere else whether it has a brilliant setting tied to a weak system or or it's just something else that you really like even if it's just nice artwork within the book you know there's always something to each supplement that I've found useful you know to take an example the uh, Torg game by West End Games the system is not not great by any means but i love the setting absolutely love the setting and so it's you know it's something that i'm quite happy to steal pieces of wholesale for other games or to tack other systems onto that setting so so to, to pick something to not exist i think everything's got some sort of merit to it then i thought about it a bit more and and to pick one that i that i actually don't like was uh to go in the face, fly in the face of what I've just said, but uh, I don't know if you're familiar with 7th Sea, the, um, the Alderac Games, uh, sort of alternate history Europe, this pirate swashbuckling style game by, by uh, John Wick and, uh, right. and same people who did Legend of the Five Rings. Right, right and uh it's uh, the the core books are, are brilliant you 've got this alternate history Europe with you know slightly with the names of the countries filed off and slightly changed uh, enough magic to keep it slightly interesting, a slightly different history and and it's a really great setting and really interesting once you get into the the meta story of the game and then this comes as the expansions came out yeah the supplements for the game um, then this may be spoilers for anyone who hasn't. Red seven uh, C but talking about a game that's probably 20 years old now, hopefully that's not too many people will actually care. Right. The The um, artifacts of previous civilizations, you know, your Atlantis and so forth, actually turn out to essentially be alien technology. Right. Which just needle scratch brought me to a grinding halt in my my appreciation of the way the setting all hung together right. and and one book in particular the uh one of the secret society books i believe it was the the day book brings out this secret all of a sudden and it's like what game am i playing you know you've gone from this swashbuckling pirate game to this uh essentially pirates versus aliens right it's, it's it's oversimplifying it slightly But uh, but yes, it really was a, such a jarring change yeah, to, to a setting a, that I really loved mm,
0: That's a common thread that you've picked there Because it, two things that I really love Both got ruined by aliens And I'm going back to my, my aversion to space again Because um, the new version of Mage um, Mage, I think it's Mage the Awakening Which goes to show how carefully I've read it um, Is... Like, all of the powers come from Atlantis, which I think is from Aliens, or is somehow associated with Atlantis. And then my one of my other favourite things, which is Highlander, was also ruined by it actually being all the work of aliens so
1: oh highlander 2 is very very poor
0: and, and i and i've spoken about that on a previous episode i've never watched highlander 2 i got i got a warning ahead of time and and right now the only thing that the only film that i've seen is is highlander and so I, my whole perception has not been warped by somebody's <laughs> idea to involve aliens with it so that's really uh so i, I feel lucky in that respect but yeah, I think Aliens are to blame for both of those. Now, um, earlier on, I cut you off. You, you'd picked a, uh, a book that you enjoyed for setting, which was Planescape, but you had another couple that you wanted to to talk about as well that you were favouring. Yeah,
1: if, if that's okay, that'd be grand. Um, because I, I did find it really hard to pin down. Um, mechanically, oh, in fact, it's probably not even mechanically, um, but as far as a, uh, a book of advice goes, the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide... for for Dungeons & Dragons. Sounds like it's going to be just another book full of rules, but uh, I don't know how familiar you are with 4th edition, but most of the rules are in the player's handbook, and the the Dungeon Master's Guide is just chock full of excellent advice for Dungeon Masters. So there's uh, there's a fair bit of system-specific mechanics and information in there, but there's heaps and heaps of just really good generic advice for Dungeon Masters, how to structure a game, uh, how to identify the types of players in your campaign and what's going to keep them interested. Um, similar, similar kinds of information, in fact, to, to what you cover in the um, Game Master section of Victoria, you know, use, really useful um, information for a GM on how to approach running a
0: game. Right. Yeah, that was one of the problems that I had when I was putting Victoria together. As soon as I sort of had an idea that I was going to put a game together, i stopped reading anything and watching anything new. All of, the, all of the works of fiction that I read were books that I'd read in the past, and I didn't read any role-playing books for you know, two – I, I still haven't read one now because I've, st- I've still got ideas for things that I want to produce. And uh, by reading those other things – you know, it sort of limits your number of options. So it's interesting you should say those those things because I, both of those are uh, elements that I've put got in the game masters, or the dungeon masters, or the storytellers, whatever you want to call it, section in uh, Victoria. And I really enjoyed putting that section together, but I was very um, very aware of the fact that other stuff that you read does have an effect on you. So if you want to produce something that you can, you know, put your hand on your heart and say, look, this is, this is what I think, rather than just a regurgitation or a, a mishmash of other bits of information that you've read uh, elsewhere, you know, it's, I think that one piece of advice I would have is, you know, try to isolate yourself as much as you can during the writing process, not beforehand, but during the writing process from other works of fiction or other... Um, or other other systems, because you want to, you know, get the feeling that you're producing something. If not necessarily unique, then um, something which you've managed to put together from your own experience. You know, it's got to have influences somewhere, but you know, it's it's really hard to maintain the impetus to write something that you believe if you've just read it and something else that that's been written right I mean it may well be a, a truth that's shared by a lot of people but if you've just read it somewhere it's very difficult to then write it yourself without feeling like you're just you know regurgitating somebody else's idea so yeah, I haven't read that fourth edition yet but yeah I can just... imagine that
1: would be quite difficult but the, 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 the section in Victoria where you discuss these these things really does come across as a GM's excellent advice straight from the heart On on how to approach these things, you know, from years of experience and, you know, not cribbed from other sources, it it really does sound like you've got good advice for GMs approaching the game. So I I, I think you've served yourself well in in avoiding other influences and you've got a, a very distinct feel for how your approach to that is.
0: Oh, you're just you're just polishing apples left and right here, Donald. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, so in that case, I'll give you a third favorite. Then you've got a one for setting as landscape, one for um, I guess supplemental advice, really not mechanics, but just as a general resource for any basically any type of game. It sounds like you're 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 saying for for fourth edition um, for the Dungeon Masters Guide, and so you do have one for system.
1: I do. Yes, um, you've you've seen through my my. Division of games into different categories, but uh, yes, definitely for mechanics, and and I'd played a lot of um, Dungeons and Dragons and other mainstreams. Probably not quite the right word, but there's definitely that feel. I was a little behind the curve with the whole indie games revolution, and which is something I'm catching up on now, getting an idea of all these these games that approach things with a with a much different feel. But the first one I was really exposed to was John Wick's Blood and Honor which is a uh, a samurai game, um, being his uh, favourite setting, of course, him having written also Legend of the Five Rings. And for his sins, uh,
0: Pirates of the Seven Seas, right? Or- uh, well, Seven Seas... Seven uh, Seas, sorry. Yes.
1: Um, <laughs> it's, it, the product line there became a victim of redheaded stepchild syndrome when, uh, when L5R was the big role-playing game that Alderac were publishing. They also had uh, deadlands uh, doomtown uh, uh, role playing right. game as well right. and 7c changed hands and changed management um, uh, not not ownership but the the person who was in charge of the line changed several right. times throughout yeah. its life cycle right. which which i suspect may have influenced the way that, that certain things well, went but uh, John Wick now is, is obviously, you know, he's very much into his independent game design, mm-hmm. having also sort of come backwards into game. You know, I've now read games like Houses of the Blooded, which is the where the mechanic of um, Blood and Honor is, comes from, right. or Cat. He has various other games. But Blood and Honor is a very um, nar- player-narrative-driven system. It's, it's mostly um, based around fate. Uh, as I've since discovered, you know, going back and, and reading other things, I've now learned about fate and spirit of the century and those sorts of things. Right. And, and I can see where that's influenced Blood and Honor, right. but it's very heavily invests the players with the power of narrative so that there's a lot of option for the players to just outright describe how actions resolve regardless of... of the, the GM's input, they can make statements about the the nature of the game setting. They can add NPCs. They can add history at any point in the just because that's what they're adding to the game. It really gives a lot of power to the player, but also really frees the GM up and uh, really opened my eyes to how a, a player driven narrative can be
0: quite different
1: to a GM driven
0: one. So with it being more player driven, uh, the narrative being more player driven. Do you think that would be something which would make role-playing more appealing or less appealing to somebody that's new to the hobby?
1: That's a good question. I can see it going either way. We found, with our players who'd, who'd played a lot of D&D but not necessarily a lot of any other games, that they really had trouble, particularly the ones who were newer to role-playing, letting go of the mindset that they would roll the dice and the GM would tell them what happened. Mm. Um, and And to turn that that narrative power over to the player they were often quite stumped you know lost on on where to go with that feeling almost that they wanted someone else to step in and, and narrate yes. the outcome for them right. they, they certainly started to get the hang of it and the more the more you play the better i could see how someone entirely new to role playing could actually pick it up more quickly without having those preconceived notions that the gm was the arbiter of every action right um, or likewise, you know, the more experienced players did pick it up more quickly, even though it was a, a quite a dramatic change in mindset. Mm. So I suspect as a first game, it could actually work really well, but for, but for someone who's familiar with a GM driven
0: system, it, yeah, it's definitely a, a change in mindset. Right. So take me a look at the flip side of that. Would you say that it would be a good game to run if you wanted to, um, spread some of the load as the GM for your group, like you were the only one or there were perhaps two of you and it was a group of seven and it just sort of alternated between the two. Do you think it would be a a gateway to people taking up the reins and becoming GMs themselves? I'd like to think so, yes.
1: I found for myself it was a huge reduction in the amount of prep that – and not necessarily the amount of prep I needed to do, but the amount of prep I felt I needed to do for more traditional D&D-style systems – and it's actually changed my mindset on the way I should approach prep and encouraged me to be more improvisational rather than to prepare over prepare my sessions um, so I think for a gm looking to share that workload, it really does encourage player involvement in the the universe you know when a player can make a a statement to immediately make something true about that setting that gives them a real investment in in what they can. Say and do, where and it sh- immediately shifts that responsibility away from the GM, which is which is great. You know, it's that much less you have to think about in advance, and more that you can invest in the session itself to responding to what the players are doing.
0: Yeah, I find as a GM, being able to play off things that the players come to the table with makes the game feel much better. I mean, in my job, I'm I'm on uh, you know 20, 20, not twenty four seven, but you know, like I'm on forty hours a week. I'm I'm at and the more of that that I can give away, the more that I can get um, the people that I deal with to do, you know, to do their own thing or to direct their own um, learning. It it makes it easier for for me, and it's, I find it less stressful. But I also find that it gives me more time to think about interesting ways to present stuff or interesting ways to do things because I'm not really responsible for every single thing that's going on and and having a like there's there's nothing wrong with having uh, if you've got a group of of people who are relatively new to role playing there's nothing wrong with with playing with a group of sponges because I mean they need to soak up a certain amount of information before they can start Um, giving something back but if you've got a group of players that you've been playing with for a reasonable period of time and they're experienced game masters uh, sorry they're experienced players but they're not prepared to take over the reins of being um, a game master anything that I can do to get them to make that that change is something I definitely want to invest in because being a, a game master is is hard work and if you're presenting all of the scenarios and you're presenting all of the twists and turns, um, then it can be exhausting if you if you're just you know firing the stuff out and people are only um, reacting they never they're never acting on their own that can be you know that can be exhausting so it sounds like Fiasco might be a good gateway for people going from being just players to uh, to also being GMs so yeah
1: fias- Fiasco is another really good one for that in that um, you, with with it being essentially GMless you've you've given you've moved the requirement for a single gm to come up with an entire plot to having four or five players who are all contributing their best ideas to moving that plot forward so we've found that in the sessions we've played we can come up with something far more innovative and entertaining and off the wall than a, a single player could think of because you've got four or five people throwing ideas out there Honing the the path of the story Until it really is something quite special
0: Yeah, so going along with that Is my next question Which is if you could only be a player Or a GM Which would you choose and why?
1: My gut instinct says player I think I have more fun as a player Than I do as a GM However, I also think that's probably me Taking the easy option Because I find that GMing is quite a stressful position for me uh, in that I find a, there's quite a sense of obligation that I'm responsible for making everybody enjoy themselves combined with an element of stage fright as well. So I suspect if I could only be one, I should probably pick GM just to stretch myself and make, take myself out of my comfort zone and learn more skills.
0: But your heart says be a player. It's easy to be a player yeah it's i i
1: i suspect that's probably the soft answer i i really do enjoy playing and i find i can put more effort into my into a single character and characterizing that character than i can into a a whole world of characters as the gm yeah but it's probably a skill that i could really use with improving
0: Mm, well i don't think it says anything about anybody individually which way they go was a GM to being a GM or a player? I mean, if you have really dug deeply, maybe you could find something something to do with issues of control and so forth. But for most people, I don't think there's anybody that really struggles with that question in their heart of hearts. Like I would choose GM, and uh, Farrell choose player, and Dave choose GM, and and you choose player. But I think that people have an answer they've got a they've got an instinctive answer and then they've got like much like yourself you know you've you've reasoned out why you could do this or why you should do that but um ultimately i think you know your first answer which is you know i think i'd want to be a player for those for those various reasons is uh probably the most it's probably the most accurate right i mean it's being being a gm is is hard work but aside from that You have to be prepared to be on and you have to be prepared to accept that responsibility that on days when maybe your players aren't bringing as much to the table, you are on for three hours. And for people that don't have a lot of spare time, it is a big responsibility to make sure that uh, that they enjoy themselves. So... Yeah, it's something that you've really got you know you've really got to want to do. It's like it's not quite like taking the game-winning shot in uh, in basketball or or something like that, but it's that sort of idea where you know you've got to either want that or or not want it. But at the same time, being a dedicated player is hard work too, because just being you can get away with just being a player, but if you want to be you know if you want to be a valuable Player to your GM, then this idea of fiasco where you're contributing towards a story, or even in Victoria where there are certain game mechanics that encourage the contribution of the players, you know, that's that's something that you can bring to the game to make it more enjoyable for everybody as well. So I don't think there's anything, any any right or, or wrong answer. Um, overall to that, I just think that there's a right and a wrong answer for people individually, and you, know, you play, to your, play to your strengths, right? So,
1: Absolutely. no, I think you're right there.
0: Um, when you are a GM, though, and, and you, you are a GM from time to time... Um, Absolutely. You, how would you prepare for a session?
1: My preparation has, has probably changed quite a bit over time. Um, when I first started GMing, I was very much based on what I'd been brought up role-playing. So it was design a dungeon, throw the players into it, see if they survive or what loot they bring out of it. And then you know, we're talking at this time, sort of time frame, you know, high school kind of age maybe. Mm-hmm. Then it went to... Uh, I, I read a lot of theory about how how people prepare for games. You know, you've got... And in fact, you cover it nicely in, in Victoria, the different approaches you can make to... Uh, to organising your game, whether it's going to be linear, whether it's going to be sandbox-style, these sorts of things. And so I read a lot of theory about that sort of thing, and and I like the idea of sandbox, and there's a a fair amount of work involved in that, and I like the idea of moving away from a linear-style railroaded game. And and so I moved a lot more to... One particular idea I liked was that of... um, I forget what the, the terminology they use, but almost like event islands. So different pieces of, of plot that you will reach, and it doesn't matter how you reach each of those pieces of plot or whether they're avoided entirely, but you might have a self-contained encounter, which doesn't necessarily depend on the previous encounter nor lead to the following encounter, but the players can approach it at their own speed. Right, I think I
0: call that lily pad in my book, but it's, it's certainly not a That's the one, yes. But um, but yeah, so the, 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 all those different... um. All those different styles require different amounts of preparation. So, so yeah, that's how you, right. How do you find that? Uh, how do you? Fi- how long do you think it takes you to prepare for for a session? And, and depending on which of those three you're you're going with.
1: Well, yeah, the originally it would depend on system. So some systems don't lend themselves to easy preparation. Um, to, to take Dungeons and Dragons for an example generating monsters and NPCs, particularly in older editions, and I'm thinking sort of 3.0 and 3.5 here, was very, very time-consuming, especially past lower levels. And fourth edition does a lot to, to clear that up, to make it a simpler process. So that can definitely affect the amount of preparation that you have to do. So we tend to run on either a weekly or a fortnightly session, depending on whether someone is... Running uh, whether we're running two games at once, so alternating games, or whether a single game is running each week. So I'd, I wouldn't have thought it unreasonable for two or three, maybe even four hours of preparation for a session. Um, so similar to the amount of time that is required right, so to play it
0: for one for you.
1: Yeah, but I've found the more you move that preparation um, away to, to player-driven narratives, that frees the GM up for less of their preparation and more of their improvisation, which is a new skill set. It's quite a different approach to me to not have written an encounter in advance and be responding to the way the players encounter it, but to let the players do whatever they want to do and to improvise the game from there and I actually really like that model, first of all, because it gives the players a lot of freedom, but second of all, it actually frees up my time, which is obviously in short supply, because I don't need to sit down and do three or four hours of preparation for a session.
0: Right, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing that goes along with, with being a GM, is, is the, the amount of preparation that you feel that you need to do. And that's also, I think, part of um, why people might choose a player or a GM, if you because you have that responsibility for making sure it's a good time uh, for everybody, depending on your, you know, how... You know how much you value your your friends or your your group's uh, time. You know you want to make sure you dot all your i's or cross and cross all your t's, right? And then some people will go in and just you know just free form. So okay, well this happens and that happens, or you decide this or you decide that. Which which also works. Like I am I sort of go somewhere in the middle of that. But I think that if you're going to be a free form GM, and, and I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. You if you're a player. And the, you see a GM that doesn 't actually have any notes or any maps drawn or anything like that. I think it would be um, inaccurate to assume that they 've really just turned up and they 're doing everything off the cuff. most players uh, sorry most GMs that I know that that do that, uh, like Chris, for example, sort of for somewhere in the middle too, but he described it well as he sort of daydreams you know the sort of things that are going on uh, in his in the game so that no matter which way the players go he's sort of already thought about general things that are going to go on in that area now it's it's impossible to pin everything down because people will always choose the way and way that you you uh, haven't prepared for but at the same time if you take the time to think carefully about and, and I've and and I can't say this enough Take a look at your players and the characters they're playing and figure out what's interesting to them and what angle they're going on because that will give you a pretty good indication about which way the game is going to go. So take that into consideration. If your number one goal is to make sure that people have a good time, make sure you know what's going to be a good time for them and you get some pretty good clues from taking a look at the, at the characters. But going back to the point you're, you're making there, giving players... Some of that responsibility for making sure that the game is good and leaving time to really focus on your improvisation is I think is pretty valuable because if players are going to throw up interesting ideas it 's nice to be able to instead of be looking ahead to the next encounter to be able to listen to carefully to what they're saying and then be able to incorporate that in your story, which you can't really do if you're trying to keep a track of how many hit points all the ogres have and, you know, what the NPCs are doing in the in the background. So, so yeah, abs- absolutely. This uh, idea of you know, theatrics and, your, and, and blood and honour... No, sorry, not theatrics. Um... Uh, <laughs> um I've lost my word. Fiasco. Fiasco. Yeah, yeah, Fiasco and uh, blood and all of those type of games I think that they can only bring, bring good things to uh, bring good things to role playing. So, what do you think the perfect number of people to role players?
1: That's another good question. Uh, I'm inclined to say four players and whether that's including a GM or not. So, uh, but but yes, four four players feels about right to me. You've Anything larger than that, and you start to get to the problem where mechanically you can find that certain actions, and combat being one of them, start to take an overwhelming amount of time and that you can start to lose the attention of some of those players. But also, as far as the, the players themselves, it's hard to keep five players and their characters interested. So to give each of those players time in the spotlight... You, you, the more players, the harder that is. And if a player is consistently not seeing that they're getting their moment to shine, yes. then it's, it's harder to keep their attention. I th- think also that four players gives you the ability to be a player or even potentially two players down for a session and still have a, a, a valuable session. Right. You know, anything less than that, you know. But if, you, if you've got three players and you, you lose one of them, that's a third of your your yes. playing team gone. Mm. Which, which can be tricky, and especially uh, with three players, you've got a, a fairly well-defined dynamic there, which right. can change quite dramatically once you've lost one player for a session. Yes,
0: absolutely. And that brings – I find that if you've got three players, the amount of work you have to do as a GM – and I don't necessarily mean preparation, but I mean in the game. If you've got three players, then the amount of work that you have to do as a GM is probably – i don't know three or four times less than the amount of work you have to do if there are two players, because as soon as you've got two players, it, suddenly the plot starts to go a lot faster, and I mean it's only one fewer pe- one fewer people, but uh, you've got. The amount of work you have to do to run that game is is much much higher. Like I say, like three or four times, I would say probably you're just yeah that different. feels right. You're constantly on when when there's two players. Now you can have a great game with two players, and I've, and I've mentioned a Project Twilight game that I played with uh, with Chris from Episode Five, and also with David. Not sorry, not David. Um, Richard, who I'm hoping to get on in a subsequent episode. But yeah, if you've got a couple of good players, then that can really it can really be a beautiful thing. But if you've just got some players and they're maybe not all that confident about taking control of the story or driving the narrative themselves then you've got a lot of extra work to do if you've just got two so uh, when somebody brought that up to me I, I, had, to, I had to agree that because people have, have busy lives and things crop up if you can't rely on your people then you actually have to have some extra people there just in case and uh, yeah I think you're absolutely right there it's, that's something that I, as I said I hadn't considered but you're having that the ability to, for somebody to be away and still have a decent uh, troop there is, uh, is pretty valuable. So mm-hmm. um, should males play females in role-playing games? And vice versa, but you can really only speak from males to females. That is true, yes. Um, in my opinion, absolutely.
1: Uh, I think that anything that encourages the players to be thinking outside themselves and into their character has to be a good thing and so if a player is going to play uh, a vulcan or a wookiee or an orc regardless of what it is you know they they're taking themselves out of their physical lives out of their out of their actual lives and into an imaginary life and gender should be no different to that um, I, I would have thought, given the opportunity to try and put yourself into the mindset of another person has got to be a valuable exercise so so definitely um, males males should play females, females should play males um, if, if they want to um, but I, I think anything that stretches your your role playing muscles has to be healthy for you.
0: Oh, absolutely! Playing, uh, as I said on the last podcast, I think um, you know if you if you're playing something that's not yourself, then you're investigating something. The only proviso that I had was if you are playing a female, um, and I don't necessarily mean like a female wookie or, or whatever or whatever it might happen to be. Um, do you think it's important for your GM to be empathic or to? be able to respond appropriately to you in the role as a female and i don't mean necessarily like he suddenly has all of the npcs feeling you up i mean like can actually give you some mileage for your investigation of what it might like to be a female
1: yeah i think that sort of feedback would certainly be positive i don't know if it's a necessity in that you can also be getting that feedback from your party. So even if the even if the GM is not necessarily feeling your attempt to uh, to to get into another mindset, if if you're getting that interaction from other party members, then there, there's still value in that. Or even there's still value in that in in just getting yourself into that mindset. You know, uh, much in the same way that I guess you know actors find it valuable to be playing all sorts of different roles to to extend their skills and their repertoire. Right. Even even if the if the director is not necessarily saying you 're doing a great job of that mm. if, if they feel that they 're learning something and expanding their skills i think there 's probably still value in that
0: Yeah, i 'm probably going to get struck down by lightning but um, Yentel uh, Tootsie, and then white Chicks are uh, three movies that uh, come to mind although i don 't think you can put all three of them in. <laughs> certainly two, one of those is not like the others um, but uh, three movies that immediately come to to mind where we 've got this we 've got this going on but um, while Yentl and, to a degree, Tootsie, I suppose, has, you know, like is, is pretty, um, a pretty valuable, I suppose, in terms of watching somebody actually try to be something else, not for comic effect. Um, although Tootsie, I suppose, was a fair amount of comicness in it, but I think he won an Academy Award for that, didn't he? Yeah. Anyway, um, you. Like if you're going to play a, and that's just talking about like because people are pretty good at pretending or having some idea of what the other sex might might be like, and so playing that character. But if you're going to play a Wookiee or a a uh, an orc, aren't you different enough already just being one of those things without putting on top what the subtleties are between being a male Wookiee and being a female Wookiee? i suspect you're right in that case yes
1: the 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 differences in gender would be over, overwhelmed by the the vast differences in species or or cultural background that it might be you know playing a uh, in fact even you know in uh, in earth based cultures it, it may be more of a stretch for the you know uh, an average white guy like myself to be playing uh, someone from the Middle East, for example with with a different mindset and cultural sure. beliefs and sure. and religious beliefs mm. that it wouldn 't be as, as large a change as playing a white female from my my particular background right sure okay. but uh, but yeah, I think they 're all just aspects of the same thing you know the getting into
0: a, a role that 's not your own, your own role
1: and and trying to explore that
0: yeah there 's definitely value there in the Exploration of what it's like to be a different person, try and get yourself into that mindset. But I would say overall that, and I'd be interested in your opinion on this because I've never really vocalised before. Is I would say that overall, role players are pretty accepting people, and I don't know if that's got to do with most people that are into role playing are pretty well read, they're fairly, uh, fairly intelligent. Um, whether it's got something to do with that or anything to do with, you know, to a degree, being somewhat outcast themselves for their interests. It's not quite the same as being black or, in some situations, being female or, or Muslim or Christian or, or whatever it might happen to be. But at the same time, being a role player, you do get a certain, well, at least people of my age and certainly yours too, get a sense of you know what it's like to not fit in or to have something that people aren't necessarily going to relate well to. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that. There's uh, I've certainly read
1: studies and more anecdotal pieces of conversation talking about the the geek fallacy of acceptance. That uh, you know, and, and I'm using geek in a in a purely accepting sense as opposed to a pejorative. Now, I proudly classify myself as a geek, but uh, there's a a school of thought that says that because uh, many people who have geeky hobbies or pastimes do find that ostracization that then when they do band together whether it be as a role-playing group whether it be as a chess club whether it be as whatever else you know whatever group of people with a with a quote-unquote geeky background that there's a requirement that they accept everybody into that fold that they become Less judgmental and more accepting of people, to, in spite of their foibles, right. which 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 is healthy in a lot of ways. You know, it, it, it's much less likely for a a geek society to to push members out, but it's also unhealthy in some, and it, it fosters uh, antisocial behaviours. And you'll you'll see that there's that that's the the myth of the you know the sweetie gamer, well not the myth, sorry, the archetype of the sweetie <laughs> yeah, yeah, gamer. Yeah,
0: it is not. Um, it's
1: not a myth. Yes. No, that's that's right, but. You know, nobody in that geek social circle feels that they have the the ability to say to someone, hey, you know, your behaviours are not acceptable in this circle, you need to change them or you need to leave, because they've heard that their whole lives. They've had lots of, your behaviours aren't acceptable, we don't like your hobbies, we don't like your, the way you dress, you right. know, so, so that they're, they'll, they'll put up with the gamer with BO or the, the sexist gamer or the, you know, those sorts of things.
0: Right. Yeah, I, th- I think Sean episode four might have mentioned, is it called Geek Social Fallacies? Or, or I believe that's right, yes. Yeah, I think that he might, have, he might have mentioned it, certainly not in the same detail, but yeah, that, um, it's good to explore that further because uh, one of the points that he made along those lines was, you know, I wouldn't want to go to the movies with you and I wouldn't want to, um, you know, go on holiday with you, so why do I have to spend my role-playing Time with you and your odious personal habits, right? And it's that that accepting, ex- that, that accepting thing. Yeah, it's yeah. it's. I think probably it goes um, goes across the board that there's you know there's always somebody that you know that you accept, but even though perhaps under ordinary circumstances you wouldn't. I think probably comes back to uh, to the point you were making before. Definitely. Okay, so um, do you or should gems fudge dice rolls?
1: Mm, my opinions
0: on that have
1: have moved over the years as well. Um, I personally tend to embrace the idea of fudging dice rolls, and I could never really pin down why. Um, I, I like the idea that if a dice roll is going to adversely affect the, the flow of a game, that the GM has the ability to step in, and without the player's knowledge, smooth that out. And I... It was very hard for me to reconcile that for a long time because, in, in in essence, it's cheating, and you've you've expected your players will not cheat, and they're expecting the same as, as you. But uh, I suspect what it comes down to is a difference between uh, a, a narrativist mindset and a simulationist mindset, mm. and the simulationist in me, you know, the the sort of the sort of brain that likes wargaming and likes mm. you know following the rules, and I'm very much a, a fan of systems and rules um, says that you shouldn't, you know, you should play everything fair straight down the line. And what you're doing is simulating whether the players have the ability to beat that dragon or to cross that chasm or, or what have you. And if the dice roll is bad, that's tough. Like they get fried by the dragon, they fall to their deaths and, and, and you should simulate it exactly as, right. whereas the narrativist point of view, whereas, you know, it's, if you've set up if, if there's an interesting storyline happening and that storyline will be curtailed because of a bad dice roll and whether that be a, a player character dying unexpectedly or your the villain who will make the exciting third act perishing unexpectedly in the second act hmm. things along those lines the narrativist point of view in me says yes you know if it's going to benefit everybody's enjoyment and not just not just that it'll make my life easier as a GM, but the the players will actually, as far as I can see, will enjoy the story more. Like, then, then yes, fudge away.
0: Yeah, oh, that's and I, and part of that is you know life is so unfair and random as it is. You know, you've got children being being shot on the crossfire of you know of, of gangland shootings or in any wars and, and, and things and you know small you know and I I'm focusing on children here because they're, they're innocent and blameless to to a larger extent, you know, catching horrible diseases and dying. You know, that's those are two extreme examples of where, you know, life life is not fair. And although there's no way to compare those to something happening fictitiously in a game. Uh, the comparison I'm drawing is between, you know, your villain dying in the second act as opposed to in the in the third act, and everybody's enjoyment being diminished as a result. You know, it comes back to that responsibility as a GM. If you want, you know, you want people to have a good time, and it's going to be a better time if you do this than uh, if you just allow the uh, cards to to fall where they where they may. Now, uh, Victoria's got a has got a system for. Um, Ameliorating that to a degree, Um, but I think you probably hit the nail on the head uh, with something that you uh, mentioned there, which is it depends on the system. If you've got a simulation system, such as say uh, you might have got might get in Han by the same things from what David was saying in episode nine, but also um, from Twilight 2000 or Rollmaster. You know, like, you live by the sword, you die by the sword in Rollmaster. If you've got the opportunity, or that is, that there's the possibility that you could kill something with one shot, you have to reasonably expect the same thing to be able to happen in reverse. So if you're playing a game that you've selected specifically for its strength as being strength as a simulation of some aspect of history or some um, fantasy or science fiction genre, then I think you've got less leeway to fudge roles but if you're playing a narrative driven game then I think it's almost incumbent upon you as the person running the game to make sure that the story goes smoothly and is enjoyable in whatever way you see fit and if that means fudging a role or or changing your story slightly to accommodate something then I think the the onus is the onus is on you so yeah Kudos to you there, Donald. You raised a good point. I hadn't considered that before. This idea of it depends on the type of system, whether you're playing a simulation system or a or a narrative system. So, yeah, I think uh, I think you've uh, hedged your bets nicely there.
1: <laughs> so, Excellent.
0: So, what's the best and or most inspiring role-playing film or TV show for you?
1: Speaking of hedging my bets, I'm going to do so <laughs> again. Uh, As far as uh, the best for me, I absolutely love the Star Wars original trilogy, the the, the original three movies. To me, they encapsulate the the, the heart and soul of why I want to role-play. I want to tell stories like that. I want to be able to do fantastic things like that. And the, the movies themselves, I think, would be... A, a hard-hearted person who could watch them and not want to try it, you know, to to have adventures like that, mm. and particularly for kids. I mean, kids fully get it. You know, that's yes. playing Star Wars and, and running around and you know waving your lightsabers around. It really is, is a, an idealized uh, role-playing environment. I, I really like it, and and to me, you know, every time I watch it, it makes me want to play a star Wars role-playing game or any kind of role-playing game for that matter. You know, it's, it's so for me, the best would, would be that the most inspiring is probably slightly cheeky in this may, I hope I'm not letting a horrible secret open to my, to people who play in games that I run, but, um, original series in particular, star Trek is right. absolutely full of plots, sto- plot hooks that you can steal and turn into a role-playing session at the drop of a hat. Right. Um, Pretty much any random episode in fact of any of the Star Trek series, but especially the original um, it 's just absolutely full of really good plot hooks. you know You can, you can take the, the the plot and and steal it wholesale, reskin it for whatever system you 're running. And, and have an entity, because they had just such great core ideas to them. So hopefully no one's going to then <laughs> look at sessions I run and go,
0: wait, I know this episode. I'm sure there'll be an ind- but that goes to something that I've suspected for a long time, and I don't think I'm alone in this. Looking at computer games, back in the, you know, the mid-'80s, uh, early-'80s, when computer games uh, started capturing people's imagination, because there was a limited amount of processing power available for the graphics. The story was everything, and the game mechanic was everything. You didn't necessarily get a very pretty representation of that on screen, but everything had to be in that. If you didn't have a good mechanic and you didn't have a good story, then you didn't have a game because you couldn't rely on your graphics to help you. But now as technology has advanced and computer power has increased, there's so much more emphasis or so much more... um, Attention is paid to how the game looks, and much less to how the game plays and I wonder if there 's a parallel there with uh, Star trek nowadays you 've got a lot of special effects which can disguise to a degree uh, the lack of a solid story or the lack of solid characters that you have but back in the days of Star Trek every, a lot of the the um, real science fiction elements of it was theater of the mind you know it required. You know, good vocal setups and good acting to try to convey this idea of, you know, these things which were impossible to represent on screen because the 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 special effects weren't, weren't there. Do you, do you think there's anything in that?
1: That's a really good analogy, and that hadn't actually occurred to me. I absolutely agree with you about computer games, and I think that they... They certainly still exist that computer games with brilliant stories are out there, but it 's so much easier to cover a multitude of sins with pretty graphics now that that it does feel like the exceptions rather than the rules whereas yeah when you go back to the especially you know, the the classic ages of of computer role playing games and the story was what drove it you know that was so so key and and i hadn 't even thought that Star Trek is exactly the same you know it really is easy to throw money at a at a um, a CGI monster now and make it look all all clever and whereas back then you you did, you had to write a story that mattered, you had to write characters that mattered. Yeah, I think that's a a really good observation.
0: Are Are you just seem to like everything that i say and everything that I do. i'll have to i'll have to see if i can get a, a shirt or something where you can and so you can cheer for me maybe i can hire you as my as my like my positive uh, my positive energy coach or something like that and i can feel good about myself all day long okay so in that case seeing as i'm your hero um who is your favorite villain and why that's another one that
1: i really had to think long and hard about um <laughs> But I listened to your previous podcast with Farrell as well, and uh, and he had some very good examples, and I definitely agree with him that a, a blowing things up for the sake of it villain is just not that scary. Um, they they may be scary in a sense of you know they must be stopped otherwise everyone will die, but trying to understand why they're doing it, it's it's not.
0: You don't have any empathy for that that so how story. Did you feel about the Joker and the new Batman Heath Ledger
1: i oh, see, I the Joker did have a motivation, and uh, and I thought they actually fairly eloquently um, summed that up, in that he is, you know, just chaos incarnate. You know, it's it's not he's not destroying the world for no reason. It's that his reason can't be uh, given a, a value. You know, it's, and and I think there's a subtle definition there, but he, he's not just out to destroy the world. He's just out to. To create anarchy, and I think that's, yeah, interesting. And and I think the personality goes a long way in that as well. Mm. But uh, but I do find it's the sort of villain that's hard to get characters to care about so much. They're more a force of nature than a uh, than a villain, and so it's. While well, the PCs will see the need to stop a villain like the Joker, it's no different than the way they'd see the need to stop a flood from wiping out the city. Right. You know, it's it's in, in a similar kind of way. You can't reason with it. You can't see its motivations. Right. And, and so the, uh, the villain that I actually thought really summed up the style of villain that I like to see was, uh, Ozymandias from Watchmen.
0: Right. Um, uh, you're
1: familiar with the comic or the movie?
0: Uh, I think I read the comic a long time ago, and then I heard bad things about the film, so I didn't see it. I've been intending to, <laughs> I've been intending to uh, to reread it, but for the benefit of those two or three people, well, I think it's two now because I think once somebody read it, um, that haven't seen it, you might have to uh, give us a bit of background on Ozymandias and, and particularly why you like him. Yeah, well the. Um and and I believe
1: the movie is slightly different in his motivations than uh, and the outcome than it is in the the book. I've only seen the movie, favorite. only seen the movie once, but the book is far and away superior. Okay.
0: Spoiler warning here. What follows is a fairly detailed discussion of certain elements of the plot of Watchmen. So if you plan to read it and or watch it, then you're going to want to tune in again at one hour four minutes and six seconds. Um but the the core
1: to Ozymandias is that he's comes across the whole time as as the reasonable character he 's not the villain and, and until the end when you and obviously this is spoilers, as you say, for the two people who haven 't read this but he he 's not the villain from the start. you know it takes them a long time to piece it all together right and when he explains his motivation it 's not for power or for money or for he 's trying to make the world a better place in his own conception of it and that makes a, a villain really interesting to me in right. that you know he's he's a a great example to in D terms of a lawful evil character he's he's doing diabolical things right. in the 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 goal of improving the the world you know as as he sees it in this particular case uh, avoiding the the potential nuclear armageddon of the of the 80s hmm. but but my absolute favorite part of his uh his portrayal is the that that brilliant villain you know the the cunning villain with the the exceptional plan there's the the scene right at the end where where rorschach and uh night owl have have reached his secret base in the arctic and uh and have confronted him and they you're expecting the big action movie showdown you know they're there to, to stop the villain and his his evil plan and they've finally confronted him and and figured out the plot mm. and and rorschach says to him oh Okay, we 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 know what you're going to do now. As he does his, you know, James Bond villain monologue, explaining his evil plan. Right. Um, you know, when 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 does all this happen? And Ozymandias turns to them and says, "About forty minutes ago." Right. He's already done his brilliant evil plan. You know, right, it's already right. come to fruition, and it's yes. too late for them to stop it. You know. Right. And it's that level of of planning and genius that makes such a an exciting villain. Right. Because. Yes, it's going to hurt the players <laughs> to 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 fail like that. But the next time he comes up with a plan, and there's probably no next time in Watchmen. But uh, no, sure. as as an example, you know, to, to, to be snubbed that first time will make the second time so much more satisfying.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It, you need to have if you're going to have a villain that people will remember and enjoy, there has to be there has to be a worthwhile conflict. It has to feel like a fight to defeat them, and I don't necessarily mean a physical fight, but you've really got to feel like you know you, you've, you've defeated a worthy opponent. And it's just—and dis- you tell me if this is incorrect—but it sounds like a distillation of what you're saying is that the type of villain that you like is a villain who you can respect intellectually, in terms of they're not just a stupid. I mean, and, and it kind of goes against what you're saying about the Joker, but you prefer villains that aren't just a force of nature with no, um, with no motivation that you can you can understand. You know, you respect the the, the evil cunning of of villains rather than their their might.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think they make more interesting antagonists.
0: And so, does personality? go into it? Like, is it important for them, for their personality to be seen? Or are you happy with them just having their machinations you know, go off um, in the background? Because in a role-playing game, you don't, unlike in a film, you don't really get to see the villain's personality so much, unless you get to have a face-to-face um, confrontation, or even a veiled confrontation where the villain is disguised as, as somebody else. In a film, you've got the scope for you know, fleshing that part of your villain out. But in a role-playing game, you really don't get to see that, or at least not mm. most role-playing games. Theatrics is an exception, but um, you don't really get to see that.
1: Yeah, that is tricky. Yeah. I must must admit, as a, as an aside, I'm a huge fan of uh, theatrical mechanics in role-playing games. I love cut scenes, so scenes where the players cannot possibly know what's happening, but you describe an event that's happening somewhere else in the world. You know, the evil villain starts, you know, Counting down his doomsday machine, or what have you, mm. uh, and and I find that they so so much like a, a cut scene in a movie or something like that. You know, when 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 it's not possible that James Bond knows that the evil villain is about to do X, but we as the viewing audience do. In the same way, letting your players know, even though the characters don't know, I find is a very useful uh, mechanical technique.
0: Right, requires a certain type of role playing, though I think probably for it to come off. Yes, yes, definitely.
1: Not, not that, certainly not that I'm saying mine always work, but it's something I like to
0: try. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And as I said, theatrics is the only system, the system that I can think of that, that endorses that, but there, there may be others. Um, so if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would be, and I don't mean that you can play a character in a role-playing game because you could do that anyway, but if you suddenly, somebody waved a magic wand or dropped a magic dust on you or something, and you could personally become a character in a role-playing game which uh, game would it be and why
1: the power gamer in me uh says amber um being one of the princes of amber you know an essentially infinitely powerful demigod with a, a you know a playful attitude to life would right. be would be pretty much ideal but that's feels to me a bit like a cop-out answer uh, so as far as as picking a role-playing game i 'd have to go with star Wars uh, one of the and I like the old west end games uh, system but but any star wars role playing game because the Star Wars universe to me just completely sums up what sort of fantasy universe i 'd love to explore you know the the scope of it and the scale of it and you know the number of things there are to see and do then then playing as a you know, becoming a maybe a smuggler or an explorer or a scout or something like that in that kind of universe with the ability to go and see and do all those you know, incredible things and places
0: and planets right. would be would be pretty awesome. Yeah, good, I think I could I could get behind that for sure. So do you have any dice superstitions?
1: I have some of the, some of the usual ones. If, if a dice is rolling poorly, it will get retired for the evening and and things like that. But generally speaking, I'm quite renowned for this in our play group. Is my appalling luck with rolling dice, and so so if, if someone's going to roll the the natural one that causes a failure, or if someone's going to uh, you know cause the the botch at the the key moment, it's going to be me or. If someone 's going to spend the entire evening missing every single attack roll they make that that 's going to be me my my dice luck is renowned for being bad and i 'm renowned for liking diceless or low dice systems <laughs>
0: well then uh, i 'm not sure if you 've read in victoria there's a, there's a um, that part of this this, like, turning over some of the narrative control to your players. Part of that comes in when you, you roll poorly. If you roll double ones in, in Victoria, then you gain a plot point for later use, but you can actually gain a second plot point um, by just dis- being the author of your own demise. Like, if you describe what it is that actually goes wrong and you make it more difficult for your character, there is actually an in game reward for for uh, doing so. So that might, be, uh, that might be right up your alley. You might be like raking in the plot points like so crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like that. that. That actually really rang a bell with me. It's the um, blood and honour, which I mentioned earlier, um, rewards the player narrative being negative for the players by giving an in-game balance. So, the, so you gain honour as a samurai for putting your character in situations where even though you have the ability to resolve that that piece of narrative positively for your character by choosing to complicate it for your character, whether that's a negative resolution or a positive resolution with a, a consequence and things like that. And, Mm. and I really like that. I think that's a a really nice way of, of encouraging,
0: um, and, and even rewarding those (laughs) bad dice rolls. And being on the receiving end of, um, uh, critical fails do you think it would make it uh, easier to take if you actually were responsible for describing the bad things that that happened absolutely
1: absolutely i'm a, a big opponent of critical fail mechanics in and of themselves I, I hate the idea of a you know you roll a natural one when you're playing dungeons and dragons and you drop your sword or something like that right you know when the, when the gm arbitrarily says roll on the bad stuff table Right. when that when that role is given back to the player when they're given the power to make the the narrative more exciting for their character that's a completely different ball game you know the giving some characters will absolutely love the the fact that they can be dangling from the edge of a cliff by their fingertips when they've flubbed their role whereas others will love the fact that they can uh, go all Bruce Willis and diehard, and they, their action still succeeds, but they're horribly battered and bruised by the end of it, you know. And giving that power to the player, rather than expecting the GM to just arbitrarily do something that they completely go against what you envision your character as, yes. Yes. Uh, I think is much stronger. Uh, nothing, nothing worse than when your, your character you envision as a cool, calm and collected, uh, you know, skilled combatant, fumbles their gun and drops it on the ground just because you rolled a one you know it's much right. nicer if, if they you know if you can have something cool happen to your character instead yes. still still bad yes. but something that fits your character's concept right.
0: yeah it, it just doesn't make any because there are often times when you have this you know you get a critical fail and the consequence of the critical fail although it should be bad what actually happens doesn't fit in with the character of doesn't fit in with your character. Like there is a, and I think that your cool guy analogy is perfect to illustrate the point. You know, like somebody that has a critical fail wouldn't suddenly fumble, wouldn't suddenly fumble their uh, their gun. You know that something beyond their control would probably happen. Like the the firing pin. Something happens to the mechanics of the gun Or something that's actually Literally beyond their control Doesn't take away their cool Doesn't alter their personality But still reflects the role And and, uh, that was my intention With that uh, mechanic of the the game Is that sometimes when you get these failures Or these things that happen in the game That stop your character being your character Rather than penalising Your character's action in the game You're almost penalising that character's personality Which I think sort of crosses that line in, uh, in a game where The game master is in control of everything Except your character So by describing a fumble Which is completely Which would never happen To your character it To me at least it, seemed, feels, it felt like it Diminished the personality You'd put into your character And there are other ways to go about reflecting that poor role
1: Absolutely, I think that's bang on
0: um, So what is your role-playing elevator pitch and your go-to example?
1: Yeah, it's it's a shame because I'd like to have one that I needed to use more often. You know, I find it's, it's hard to convince people to, to give role-playing a go. It's the sort of thing that the, the barrier for entry is unfortunately high. So it's not something I have the chance to use often because there's not just that many people I'm trying to convince to start role-playing. Mm. Um, in, in terms of, of sheer explaining it, um, I, I'll either go one of two ways. As a very, very simple example. I'll, I'll say it's very much like the, the games of pretend you play when you're a child, uh, except you uh, you have some sort of more codified set of rules around it. And they can be very rules light or very rules heavy, depending on what you're doing. But mm-hmm. but it, it really is at its core um, a, a group of people telling a story together. And it's a bit abstract and it's a bit wishy-washy, but uh, but the, the, the more concrete example that I sometimes give is to give a comparison to, uh, to Whose Line Is It Anyway? The television show. Right. And... Essentially, you've got a group of... So, so theatre sports, isn't it? Is that what they call it? Mm, yep. um, so, essentially, you've got a group of people playing a role and one person, so in the, the instance of Whose Line Is It Anyway, it's your Drew Carey or Clive Anderson, mm. setting the scene and giving the example and everyone else stepping into the role of a character. Except, you know, in, in this case, you've got a GM in that role who's setting the scene and, and telling people what the environment is and then everyone else steps into a role of the character and, and acts that out.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Actually, uh, I, the uh, analogy with whose uh, line anyway is, and you know, cause saying Clive Anderson or or um, Drew Carey as the, as the game master is it's not a an analogy that I'd drawn. So um, that's interesting. I'll have to keep that in mind for future. So the last question, and possibly the the one that I get the most variety of answers on, um, is totaling a hundred quantify system. GM and players. Yeah, that's another one that my opinions
1: have probably changed over the years as well. I, am a huge fan of systems. I love systems and I love mechanics and I love collecting games to learn new systems and new mechanics. Uh, My play group would probably describe me as a rules lawyer um, or if they're being less polite as a hole picking dick. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but, uh, I, I tend to think of it more that I appreciate the rules, and in rules heavy systems, I tend to to try and follow all of those rules which which can end up with a, that sort of rules lawyery feel and that you, you know there 's a rule to cover that situation, but equally in a, in a rules light system i 'm really fascinated with with how much play they can get out of those mechanics so to, to, again to go back to what I know uh, fiasco for example in in pure Dice rolling mechanical sense is very, very light. You know, there's almost no dice rolling, um, and the the actual mechanics regarding what you can and cannot do and the resolution of, of actions are, are essentially non-existent. You know, it really is a, a storytelling game at its at its most fundamental. But that system is so core, so so key to the even though it's a very light system, that the game would fall to pieces if you were to. To not be using it, or it wouldn't be the game anymore anyway. Right. Um, so, yeah, so system is a, is a tricky one. It's, it's one that I – I'm a, yeah, as I say, I'm a huge fan of systems, and so I'd like to put that relatively high. But then balancing it against the GM and the players is, is also very tricky. I, I think that without a good set of players, you, you're going to be – struggling regardless of the system regardless of the GM and I think a GM can, ele- a, an excellent GM can elevate a good uh, a set of average players but I think that's, that's quite a hard ask I think the, the reverse that a, a set of excellent players can cause a GM to raise his game much more easily than an excellent GM can raise the game of a, of a set of average players right. um, obviously a, uh, an excellent GM never hurts either Sure. Uh, so, this is all very prevaricating, but uh, I'd probably say it's going to be something fairly average. So, something like thirty percent to system, thirty percent to GM, and forty percent to players.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, being on the on the show today. And as I said earlier in the uh, podcast, I'm hoping to get both you and Farrell back on the show to um, talk about you know what it might take to put a game together so if you'd be amenable to that i'd look forward to having you on sometime in the next few weeks that sounds excellent thanks dan well ladies and gentlemen donald gardner that's it for episode 10 of penny red thanks for listening in if you've got any comments arising from the show or you can think of any questions you'd like me to ask my guests then drop me a line daniel at hazardgaming.com Next week inside the Roleplayer studio, I've got Tim Brannan, writer of Ghosts of Albion and contributor to a whole slew of other roleplaying games and supplements. So until then, keep talking the walk.